Welcome, everybody, back into Down the Line, the tennis show for you on Blaze Radio. The biggest story of the day, without a doubt, is the injury that Roger Federer endured, or he endured it a bit ago, but he's now going to have arthroscopic surgery on his right knee. It'll keep him out through the French Open. He says he'll be back for the grass court season. This will now be the fourth time in five years that Federer doesn't play the French, which is really uh, an exceptional pattern that he has developed. But I think what's so incredible about this is that a 38-year-old athlete can have knee surgery and there's not really any concern. It's not, oh man, is this the end for Fed? It's okay, we'll see him when he gets back and he'll be one of the four best players in tennis. Which is remarkable because I can think back to a time where that wasn't the case in even Federer's own career. When 2013, when he was having all those back problems, had a really rough year, people were asking, is this over? Now, it's ridiculous with retrospect, but at the time, he didn't look like himself. And now we're talking about seven years later, seven full years, he's older, he should be more frail, and yet he looks so incredible that even with this news, there's not really any doubt. Highlights how special he is, how incredible his longevity is, which I've talked about many times on this show because I think it's very significant to his argument for the greatest of all time. And also the fact that he was able to reach a Grand Slam semifinal while actually being injured in such a gritty way, having to fight against Millman, having to fight against Sangren, utilizing mental toughness to the max, it's incredible on his part. And you can't deny how impressive it is. And I do think, obviously I'm not in his body, my feeling is that he will be fine and he will come back and he will contend in Wimbledon. And it makes sense that he's saving up for Wimbledon because he's made four of the last six finals at Wimbledon, hasn't made a final at the French since 2011. But one of the things that will happen from Federer missing this time, is the Dominic team will pass him in the ranking. Remarkably, this will be the first time team ever enters the top three, and that's fine. I don't think that that's all that significant to Federer. Uh, it's a nice moment for team to be able to enter that truly elite upper echelon where he can say, I've passed up one of the big three, even if it's due to injury. But Federer could also very well fall behind Medvedev because Fed has a lot of points to defend in this stretch that he's about to miss. 3,180 to be exact, because this was probably the best stretch of his year last year. He won Dubai, he won Miami, he made the finals at Indian Wells. So it's not ideal to lose all those points. If he drops to five in the world behind Medvedev, is that the end of the world? Of course not. And again, he wants to be able to play at Wimbledon. But it does open up an opportunity, especially for Medvedev, because... Medvedev enters the hard court, uh, the U.S. hard court as far as Indian Wells and Miami swing and the clay court swing that follows that, where he really has almost no points to defend. He has only 825 total points all the way through this stretch until Wimbledon because didn't reach the quarters in Indian Wells or Miami, lost first round in Rome, Madrid, and the French, so his only two results are really from Monte Carlo and I want to say... Barcelona, where I think he made the finals. So not a lot of points to defend at all for a top five guy because, of course, it was the summer stretch where he really broke through last year. And his game on clay is always suspect. That is that is one of his weaknesses as a player, and I don't think he has many. But he will do much better, I think, at Indian Wells and um, Miami, where he has 135 points to defend over those two tournaments. He's a legitimate contender to win either of those, in my opinion. Let's talk about what's been going on with Medvedev as of late, though, because... There were some alarm bells ringing earlier today when he went down in the first set 6-1 to Yannick Sinner. And that was alarming because, first of all, 
Obviously, he's coming off of being upset in Rotterdam by Vasek Pospisil. He came off of a not-so-great Australian Open where he lost in the fourth round to Stan Wawrinka. And when you're talking about a guy like Medvedev, whose skill set is basically, I will throw weird stuff at this other guy until he misses, and I will get every ball back. And yes, he's a big server. He can flatten out the forehand when he needs to, but he's basically going to make people beat themselves. Those kind of people aren't supposed to get upset. But Sinner was dictating here. Medvedev not playing his best tennis, missed some easy balls on big points, and was in particular struggling with his backhand early. And then he basically just stopped missing. His defense at 6-6 is so ridiculous, I have never seen anything like it in my life from a tennis player, and I don't know if I ever will. Not just his willingness to play defense, but his ability to cover the court and his ability to get balls back that you, sh- you shouldn't be able to get back physically for a big guy who can serve 140. He's so unique, and it's really fun. And his forehand got going, so then he won the next two sets, one and two. And so the three-set match was an hour and 20 minutes, which was interesting. But Medvedev, I'm still not thrilled with this performance, because the last two sets was how you need him to play every match. But for me, the expectation for Medvedev is that he beats everyone except for the rest of the guys in the top five, that being Djokovic, Nadal, Federer and team, he should beat everyone else consistently, I think, because he showed us he's capable of that. Last year, went on a 29-2 stretch in the hardcourt swing, especially on hard. He cannot be giving up these points freely. He gave up a bunch of points at Rotterdam, where I thought he probably should have won that tournament, which is a 500, ended up going down in his first match, left some points on the table at the Australian, and could have done it again here. So, he played how he needed to late. He has Simone next, who he should really destroy But this isn't the easiest draw, so he's going to have to play well to win this tournament, and that's just for 250, but I think as we look ahead to the to the hardcourt swing in Indian Wells in Miami, I think he should be playing some really good tennis by them, and then I hope so, because I put a lot of faith into this guy before the year. I think that he is special, and I think that he is so unique that he's extremely difficult for other people to play, even not considering his talent level, which is extremely high, because stylistically he's so unique. On the center side of things, this was good to see. Um, continue to see good things out of him at 18 years old. Beat Gofan last week. Was really effective attacking from the ground in this match. And it's only promising things that we're seeing from him. The results, I believe, will come. We saw the results when he you know, won the ATP Next Gen Finals last year. Admittedly, not against the highest level of competition. But he's beating his peers. And I think that that's something we can expect him to do for a while. And there comes a point where... Your peers are the top competition because you age into that world. So I think Sinner is going to be very good, and he's one of the premier talents in the sport, no doubt. But there is a younger talent that actually beat Yannick Sinner last year, and that is Carlos Alcaraz, who barely lost to Federico Coria 6-4 in the third set of their match in Rio. Alcaraz, of course, is 16 years old. And I honestly think I like what I saw from this match from Alcaraz more than I saw in his win over Ramos Vinolas. Because he was attacking more. There was a lot of defense in his first round match. He was attacking in this one. And he is so solid from the ground for a 16-year-old. I mean, you look at a guy like Sinner where the talent is evident. But he can get out of control. And he can spiral. And he can start missing easy balls that he should probably make. Alcaraz, we've only seen two tour-level matches. But he did not have moments like that. Which is incredible at 16. And his backhand will be one of the best on tour. You can believe that. He's been competing exceptionally well at his level, 14-1 and in ITF Futures matches to start the year. And I really want this guy to start playing in challengers regularly and winning challengers because I want to see as much of Carlos Alcaraz as possible because he's a thrill to watch. He's so exciting for the sport that has been devoid of new stars for a while. And I think that we are really entering a nice generation where we have these guys that are 21 and younger that are fun and are exciting and are producing, admittedly, Alcaraz on a different level from, you know, like a Stefano Tsitsipas, but... He's also five years younger. So 
Unfortunately, I think that he'll probably be too low in the rankings to get a wild card at Barcelona or Madrid, obviously in his home country of Spain, but I really hope he does because he's a thrill to watch. And his backhand, when he flattens it out down the line, it's <laughs> it looks like one of the best backhands on tour already, and he still has so far to come. And he's got, obviously, a highly experienced, respected coach in Juan Carlos Ferrero in his camp. So I have a lot of faith in Alcaraz. He's young, obviously tough to bet on from that respect, but so much potential, and it's really fun to see him in this tournament where he competed so hard in back-to-back matches. I was talking about the guys from the younger generation, and another one who had tremendous expectations on him coming into the season and has largely disappointed thus far is Denis Shapovalov. Had a nice win over Marin Cilic in three sets in Marseille, and he's now 4-6 and six on the year. He has Alexander Bublik next. 100% has to win this match because he just can't keep losing the guys that he's supposed to beat, which has been the theme of the year for him. And my expectations for him was that he would be a top 10 player because I think he's one of the rare talents where I can actually say, yeah, that guy could be number one in the world. I can reasonably see that. Um, but he's had some bad losses. Obviously lost to Pospisil and has just lost early. He lost in the first round of the Australians. So this is an opportunity for him to take a little bit of a run maybe. He's got Bublik's and then could match up against Sitsipas in the semis who he leads in their head-to-head 3-0 on hard court. Uh, obviously Sitsipas is tough. He's an incredibly talented player. Shapovalov, though, when he's really attacking, I think can be more dominant, uh, more explosive, and more unbeatable than Tsitsipas because Tsitsipas is more of a, you know, looping ball, uh, whereas Shapovalov is just raw power when he's at his best. So that could be a spot for him to redeem himself, but this isn't an easy draw. He's lucky that he has Bublik, so he should be able to rack up some points. Bublik's been playing well, but that's the kind of match Shapovalov has to win, right? That's the standard you get held to. I don't care if you're 20. When you're also top 20, you got to beat these guys. Let's move on to the women's game real quick because obviously there's a big tournament going on in Dubai this week. And I think probably the biggest story from that is Elena Rybakina, who is into the semifinals after beating Pliskova, who was the second seed. And she kind of took it to her. Really aggressive from the ground, dominated the first set tiebreak 7-1, and then went up a break immediately in the second set. And she sort of just blitzed Pliskova and it was like, okay, this is over now. Next up, she has Petra Martic, which is a very winnable match. And Rybakina is quietly having a tremendous start to the year. I mean, she just made the finals at St. Petersburg last week. She's now 18-3 in 2020 at 20 years old. And if she makes the finals here in Dubai, she will have reached the finals in four of her first five tournaments on the year, everyone except the Australian Open, where she lost to world number one Ashley Barty. She's already 19 in the world, and I think that in this confusing, muddled era of women's tennis, she is really one to watch for. Not only among the younger generation, but among people that can contend now, because I think we see with Kennan breaking in and with, you know, Andreescu winning a slam, obviously. It's not like there's this dominant strata at the top of women's tennis that you have to break through. Serena was that. Serena isn't that right now. So it's up for grabs. The best players can win, and that can be someone that's new to the scene. And I think Rybakina has that potential. She's really one to watch going forward. Sticking with Dubai real quick, uh, another nice storyline Jennifer Brady of the U.S. is also on a really nice run. She's beaten three straight top 20 opponents in Zvitolina, Vondrusova, and Muguruza on her way to a semifinals appearance against Halep. I think that Halep is going to be very tough to beat because Halep really just doesn't lose to inferior players all that much. She's got such a solid all-around game. But it's really good news for Jennifer Brady, and it's good news for American Tennis, who, of course, there was some disappointment in this tournament with the young people. Anisimova and Kennan both lost first round, so it's nice to have that redeemed somewhere. Coming up on the other side of the break, we're going to be doing plenty more talking about the Americans. I will be giving my 
power rankings of the most intriguing American men. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com. Welcome, everybody, back into Down the Line. I'm your host, Carson Brever. So, as I tease on the other side of the break, we're going to be talking about the most intriguing Americans. Now, these are not necessarily the most promising, and they are certainly not the best. But with the Americans, really, how great can you be, right? None of them are all that good to where it's worth ranking them in that respect. And, of course, we have the ATP rankings to do that for us. So, number one on my list of the most intriguing American men is Brandon Nakashima. And Nakashima is certainly a new face and a new name on the tennis scene. This is his first ever ATP tournament. His first tour-level tournament, that is. He's ranked 290 in the world, and at 18 years old, was the number four junior in the world and a junior U.S. Open semifinalist. Then he played his freshman year uh, of tennis at the University of Virginia, where he was highly successful. He's coached by Pat Cash. Um... And he's now won back-to-back matches in straight sets over legitimate opponents at Delray Beach. He beat Yuri Vesely, who had just won a title, and Cameron Norrie, who's top 60 and had just beaten fellow American Taylor Fritz. So Nakashima, looking ahead in this tournament, has Nishioka up next. That is a very winnable match. And I am really excited to see this guy in person when I get the chance because the talent may not overwhelm you. I think that he has the ability to attack in big spots. I think that it looks like he has a really nice game from the ground. He moves well. He covers the court. Doesn't have any outstanding weapons, doesn't serve it all that big, but I really hope that he gets a wild card in Indian Wells. And I said this after he won in the first round. Now I think that it's very likely that he will because Americans are desperate to invest their tennis faith in anyone that they possibly can. And when you have someone that at 18 years old is actually winning matches on tour, which you go through generations of American guys for the past 10 plus years, guys haven't been able to do that. So it's not on a huge scale. These aren't huge matches, but they are legitimate wins over legitimate pros. And I'm very excited to see what Nakashima can do going forward. So he's number one on my intrigue scale. Number two is Tennis Sangren. I don't know how he could be left off my list. He is the weirdest tennis player ever, I would argue to say. Follows up his quarterfinals appearance at the Australian Open and his very near victory against Roger Federer, where he held seven match points, of course, follows that up with a first-round loss to Steve Johnson in a third-set tiebreak. So even when he goes down, it's got to be in thrilling fashion. Just came out with some controversial comments about how he thought that Djokovic was the greatest of all time, Federer was the prettiest to look at, basically. Maybe that's not all that controversial because there are so many directions you can go in the GOAT debate, and Djokovic is obviously continuing to pick up steam. But it seems a little bit weird coming off of the fact that he just lost to Federer. But maybe the weirdest part about Sangren... Besides his style, which is he'll throw in weird slices at any point. He does not have textbook strokes by any stretch of the imagination. He's got like a kick serve out wide to the forehand, which is a nice serve that you just don't see very often. But the disparity between his level of playing Grand Slams and outside Grand Slams. He's 9-3 in his last 12 matches at Slams, with a fourth-round run at Wimbledon, a third-round run at the U.S. Open, and then, of course, that quarterfinal run at the Australian. And he's 4-8 in his last 12 non-Slam matches. So he's just a wild man. He's a guy named Tennis from Tennessee who comes out in headbands and they don't look very good and his strokes don't look very good and yet he's a thrill and he's unpredictable. Except you can't predict that he will do much better in Grand Slams than everywhere else and that's how he's made a living. So he's got to be number two on the list for me. Moving on to number three. Another guy that is from an obscure spot in the tennis world, Jack Sock, who is from Kansas City if I'm not mistaken and of course played college at Nebraska. He has an all-time weird story because... 
He didn't have an ATP ranking coming into Delray Beach this tournament, and he picked up his first win in a long time, which was nice to see, after he was top 10 just two years ago. I've talked a bunch about Sock this week because he is back on tour, which is good to see, but obviously missed seven months with a thumb injury and just couldn't win a match for a long time. And he just beat Radu Albat, who was the defending champion at Delray Beach. So does he turn this thing around at 27 years old? So has a bunch of career left. It's just weird because there was a time where he was the American guy. And now he doesn't even have a ranking. But he's about to get some points, so that's good to see. Number four in my most intriguing Americans, Francis Tiafo, who has always sort of been the American hope. And that especially kicked up a notch when he made the quarterfinals at the Australian Open last year. Now, I've never been all in on Tiafo. I don't think that he has quite enough weapons, and I don't think he's quite consistent enough. And the consistency is probably more of an issue than the weapons. Because there are times where his forehand and backhand get going, and it's pretty powerful, and he serves big enough. But he's got a compelling story, right, because he grew up on the tennis grounds. His dad was an employee, and that's how he got to play. But the results just aren't there. He's 13-20 and 20 since Rome of last year. He hadn't won a match in 2020 until Delray Beach. He was 0 for his first three, and now he's won a couple, which is good to see. But ranked 84 in the world at 22 years old, which isn't all that young. And 84 isn't all that high of a ranking. And he's not even lighting up challengers this year where he was 3-2 and two in two challenger tournaments. So what I want to see from Tiafo is how does he rebound after he peaked early last year and has really been on the downhill ever since then? How does he rebound and how good is he? Where does his career level out? Is he a top 30 guy? Um, my inclination is he's actually probably not. Is he a top 50 guy? I think that's more around where he settles in the 40 to 50 range. Or... Is he this number 84 ranking that we're seeing from him right now? I don't think that he's that. I think that he's still probably getting slightly better as he grows older and becomes more experienced, but not a lot of encouraging results from him as of late. Number five, you could argue I should have this guy higher, but Tommy Paul is my fifth because Paul was obviously a prominent junior. He was a junior slam champion, and he was going toe-to-toe in this generation, which was Tommy Paul, Tiafo, and Taylor Fritz, who we haven't talked about because I think he's established enough where he's not all that intriguing, except for the fact that he had some children at like 19 years old. But I don't think that his game itself is all that intriguing. But Tommy Paul finally seems to be putting it together at 22 years old. He's up to number 70 in the world. He's 6-4 and four on the year. Just went down to Tiafo in a close two-setter, but reached the semis at Adelaide and then beat Dimitrov in the Australian Open. So these are encouraging results. And part of the reason I'm drawn to him is because I just think he's a more natural talent than like a Tiafo. I think he's got a more traditional game, and I think that he's got a more beautiful game. And so maybe that's a little bit of the appealing eye test overriding the actual results. But I think that he projects well. And I actually think that he's a guy that I would put my faith in over, say, a Tiafo. And I think that he's a guy that could actually take the jump to be maybe top 40 this year. I hope he does. But I don't know. It's tough to count on any of these Americans. And sixth, just so we can end on a weird number here because I didn't want to leave this guy off, is Mackie McDonald. Just getting back from uh, his torn quad, which kept him out for between seven and eight months, showed a lot of promise before the injury. You know, beat Del Potro in Delray Beach, had a great tournament there, had reached the fourth round at Wimbledon in 2018, has generally played really well in slams. If you go back to a few years ago when he pushed Dimitrov to five sets in the Australian Open, eight, six in the fifth, pushed Chilich at the Australian last year to a tight four-set match. He's always performed well in the slams, and he's at least tested people, and I think that he's talented. So 
Obviously, one of the great college tennis players of all time, won both singles and doubles titles at UCLA and was just the top dog in that world and then came over to the pros and has a different perspective from these other guys who, you know, were highly touted juniors like a Tommy Paul, like a Taylor Fritz, like a Francis Tiafo. Mackey hasn't had that, but he has more results, certainly, than Tommy Paul. So those are the guys that I'm going to be looking for. Those are the weird, intriguing Americans. And we'll see if any of them end up doing anything. Odds are they probably won't. But... Some guys that have been doing some stuff on the low. I'm going to shout out three guys that I have been on for a little bit here on down the line that just continue to produce. And it's Vashak Pospisil, Sun Wukwan, and Igor Jirasimov, who are all continuing their good re- good years this week. Pospisil, now 8-4 and four on the year and into the quarterfinals at Marseille. He has two top wins already on the year, also beat Shapovalov. And it's just great to see him back and healthy at 29 years old. He has Stefano Tsitsipas next in the quarterfinals. That's about as tough as it gets, but he also beat Medvedev last week. So that's going to be an interesting matchup. I don't know if the serve and volley strategy is going to work against Tsitsipas because I think that his ball is just going to be hard to handle. There's a lot of spin on that thing. Pospisil's a great volleyer, though, so he's as well-equipped as anyone to handle it. That's going to be an interesting matchup. Sun Wukwan, now 5-3 and three on the year, into his third straight quarterfinal. And he's not all that impressive. At 22 years old, I talked about him. He is... Really, though, one of the best Asian players on tour right now. And the best Korean player on tour with Hyun Chung out. So, I like pulling for him. And I think that it's fun to see a guy at 22 years old, not all that old, obviously, but not extremely young, having just a solid, consistent year. And another guy who has been one of my favorites on the tour this year, Igor Gerasimov, 6'5", 27-year-old out of Belarus. Now 7-2 and two on the year. He just upset David Goffin in Marseille which I predicted before the match, might I add. So I've been on a bit of a roll lately. I picked Casper Rudd would win in Rio, uh, or excuse me, not Rio, whatever tournament that was, I can't even remember. Um, and now I'm picking my boy Igor Gerasimov to pull off the upset, the improbable upset. And I don't quite understand how he hasn't done anything before this because he's 36-18. and 18. By the way, I'm now remembering Casper Rudd I picked to win the Argentina Open. Uh Jerosimov is 36 and 18 on his career in tour matches, and he was 11 and 1 from 2015 to 17. One loss. Now, those numbers are slightly inflated because some of them are against low level Davis Cup opponents, and those matches count. Like, I'm talking pretty low level, like, you know, it could be around 500 in the world, and he has the rare opportunity because he plays for Belarus that he is representing his own country, and he's better than those guys, so he racks up those wins. I just think it's strange that he hasn't done anything because. He's got a big serve. He's actually got pretty good control at times, and he can hit it big. So I'm a fan of his, and I think that he's actually going to have a pretty good season going forward. 7-2 and two on the year, as I mentioned. So that's pretty solid. Moving on, some weird things are happening in Rio. Four of these six current quarterfinals that have already advanced at the time of this show are outside of the top 100. We have Gianluca Mager, Attila Balas, Pedro Martinez, and Federico Correa. And this is a 500, so these are very legitimate points that they're racking up, and we will have at least one guaranteed semifinalist outside the top 100 between Balas and Martinez. And if you compare this to the draw that I would imagine we're headed for in Dubai slash Acapulco, which are the 500s coming up next week, where you have Rafa in Acapulco, you have Djokovic in Dubai, both tournaments are supposed to have three top 10 guys each, versus this tournament in Rio, where Dominic Team was the only top 20 competitor. So it's a really strange disparity. The draw in Marseille was much tougher than Rio. The other draws in the 500s. And I think it's just the fact that you have this weird clay tournament in a relatively remote location at this time in the year. It doesn't make sense. And I think it's something for the ATP to reconsider because people should have fair chances at these points. And yes, it is their decision not to play 
but there are also pretty clear incentives that are saying, well, why would I play here when I could play in this more desirable location on a surface that's not going to throw me off my rhythm? So something to think about going forward. But one of the stars of the Rio Open that I just mentioned, Attila Balas, at 31 years old, he's number 106 in the world. He has never been in the top 100, and he was a lucky loser at Rio. But he's now into the quarterfinals, and he's got another crazy thing going like Jerosimov, where he's 25-17 and 17 in his career on tour-level matches, which is a better winning percentage than eight top 20 players. So you can only imagine how much better Jerosimov is, but they top 20 players that he has a better career winning percentage than. Matteo Berrettini, Fabio Fognini, Diego Schwartzman, Andre Rublev, Denis Shapovalov, Karin Kachanov, Felix Ogialiassime, and Benoit Paire. He was a finalist in the 250 last year, which is really one of the few relevant things that he's done in his career overall, but 70 and 78 in challengers. So it's incredible because then you look at the flip side on tour level matches, he's 21 and 10 on clay. That is legitimately a very high rate of success. So now he has the 133rd ranked Pedro Martinez up next, which is a very winnable match. And I'm going to be rooting for the 31-year-old Slovak Attila Balas because it's such a strange disparity between <laughs> winning percentage and career results and even winning percentage between tour-level matches and challenger matches. So shout out to the unsung heroes that we talk about here on Down the Line when the big stars aren't playing. We do have one last story to talk about involving the big stars, and it involves Roger Federer. It's not an injury-related story, but Sirjan Djokovic, who is Novak's father, just took another shot at Roger Federer. He's done this historically in the past about how he's a different guy off the court than on the court and how his public persona isn't consistent with who he actually is, but talked about his lack of humanity, which is very strong language, called him jealous of Djokovic, and basically just says that he's not a good guy overall, which is a very intriguing dynamic to watch because how much time is Sirjan spending with Roger? Probably not that much. Is he hearing this from Novak? I don't know. It's an interesting thing to explore. But Federer, one of the most beloved athletes, I would argue, in the world, universally beloved basically by tennis fans, there's a small minority that get fed up maybe with his prissiness, fed up. There's a little play on words for you. But it's fascinating to me that, you know, obviously none of us know these guys. And a lot of people say that Djokovic is really the one that is best with fans. So it's an interesting dynamic to look for. I don't know. But Fed's public persona, is he hiding something? I'm not going to indulge in the gossip like that. It was just a storyline that I think was turning some heads, and so I wanted to address it here on the show. But that's going to do it for us here today on Down the Line. I've been your host, Carson Breber. Make sure to go out there and watch some tennis. You are listening to Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com.